You're listening to Where We Are, a weekend conversation on faith, politics, family, and culture, hosted by me, Michael Ware, and my wife, Melissa. We bring our wide-ranging experiences in politics, ministry, and nonprofit life to bear as we discuss the issues of the day. On this week's episode, we'll talk about the crazy week in Congress that ended uh, with some craziness in the executive branch. We'll break it all down here on Where We Are. This is Where We Are. We are the Wares. I'm Michael. I'm Melissa. And Melissa, uh, glad to be with you. It has been a, a, a pretty insane week in Washington, D.C. Yeah, there's been, you've been coming home every night going, I can't believe our politics is like this. Like, whoa, uh, a lot going on. We're going to try and break down uh, uh, quite a bit of it on the episode. I finished my week... On the Hill, actually, uh, speaking to over 100 Hill staffers uh, at an event that the Center for Christianity and Public Life sponsored with our friends at Faith and Law, was able to speak with Hill staffers about uh, about uh, gentleness and anger in our politics, uh, coming from the fifth chapter of, uh, of the new book, of the spirit of our politics. And so enjoyed that experience, so enjoyed the engagement from the Hill staff, and would ask folks to pray for our folks serving in Congress, not just the elected officials, but those who support them. They're doing uh, really, really important work, and uh, uh, just met some really wonderful people. Uh, It did give me an occasion to return to the Rayburn House office building, where I interned like 18 years ago. Uh, uh, when I was a college student, and that was a blast too. Yeah, you were delighted. Uh, it 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 was. Um, I hadn't been in those hallways. I'd returned there since because I've I've had had meetings there. But it was it was fun, given that I was going to be uh, th- that I that I spoke there. Um, also, uh, had a book event, a book reception hosted by the Trinity Forum in D.C. And, and enjoyed that as well. This coming week on February 15th, I'll be in Richmond. So if you are in the Richmond area, go to ccpubliclife.org and you can uh, find the details about this event. Uh, I'm, I'm super excited to be in Richmond uh, this week. Uh, also, just a reminder, uh, the discussion guide for the spirit of our politics that CCPL created is also available on the website. And so if you want a, a guide as, as you, your small group, book club, church are going through the spirit of our politics, uh, we've created a free guide for you for that purpose. But yeah, great week. We have quite a bit to discuss on this week's episode, a longer episode than usual, because uh, again, it's been a, a, a busy week in Washington, D.C. in particular. We'll talk about the special counsel's report on President Biden, his handling of classified information and all the fallout that came out from that. But first, let's talk about what unfolded in the United States Senate 
around this border security compromise bill uh, that was connected to Israel. Uh, I, I won't uh, go into the most utmost granular level of detail, but it is important to sort of understand how all of this developed. Republicans were facing significant internal pressure uh, around Ukraine funding. Uh, the last, uh, uh, the last Ukraine aid went through. Some Republicans took took hits for it. Uh, you had a Republican primary that was getting increasingly contentious around Ukraine funding. DeSantis was. Uh, uh, really starting to question how Congress was was approaching funding Ukraine. Really, Nikki Haley was sort of the stalwart uh, uh, who was unabashedly saying U.S. should stand by Ukraine, get them what they need. To, to alleviate some of this internal pressure, what Republicans did was they said, look, we are not going to approve additional aid for Ukraine unless our border is taken care of. Uh, now, like the, the policy justification for, 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 for this is, it, uh, uh, from the Republican perspective, urgent crisis. Um, if we're gonna be sending out uh, money even for a, a worthwhile cause, which some of them question, but a worthwhile cause like Ukraine, uh, we can't keep kicking the ball forward uh, and down the road on the border because there's a crisis on the border. So Senator McConnell appoints Senator James Lankford, conservative Republican from Oklahoma, to represent Republicans in negotiating, uh, in seeking to negotiate a border security compromise uh, approach with Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut and uh, Democrat and independent Senator Kristen Sinema of Arizona. By the way, the only one of those three uh, on a board, uh, that, that represents a border state. Now, I think at the outset of all of this, the idea was Republicans have really boxed in Democrats here, and especially President Biden. Biden needs to get Ukraine funding through. Uh, immigration is one of the issues where Republicans were polling really strongly and Democrats uh, pretty poorly. And so instead of just having these Republican senators approve this funding to Ukraine, take hits among uh, 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 aspects of their base, you tie in an issue that is really good for Republicans, politically speaking, and take care of a, a policy issue too. But but the political justification was, hey, this this sort of really helps keep keep the party, keep the caucus together, and will force Democrats to work and talk about an issue where they're polling poorly. Um, then at some point, this idea was reported, and, and I haven't tracked like all the trajectory of this, 
whether it was driven by pundits and analysts, whether it was something that was sort of put out by uh, by the White House, by uh, by um, by Democratic uh, of, of folks on the Hill. Often it's a combination of the two. But the idea started to develop, especially as negotiations seemed to show some promise, that maybe the White House is welcoming, including border security in these negotiations, uh, because they'll be able to sign a bipartisan bill that has Republicans on it addressing border security, they obviously, you know, could read the poll numbers and see see that uh, uh, politically immigration was going to be a leading issue uh, uh, for Donald Trump to make his case against Biden. I think policy wise, I think there's there's also a genuine interest the Biden administration had in getting more tools to address the border issue. I mean, this is why they fought, agree or disagree with the policy. But remember, the Biden administration was uh, was in court to hold on to the Title 42 uh, provision that Donald Trump put into place. Uh, and so the Biden administration has a, uh, it, it's sort of incontrovertible that they were looking for more policy levers to address the situation on the border. All right. But now there's this notion that maybe this will help the Democrats. Yep. And you start sensing some queasiness. You start sen- you start that. you start sensing some uh, some reticence. Uh, in the the twenty four forty eight hours leading up to Murphy, Lankford, Cinema announcing their compromise, Speaker Johnson announces in the House. Uh, that they are just going to advance Israel funding on its own. This was like a big, this was like a significant change. It, it, it kind of came out of the blue. Um, and frankly, I didn't read the tea leaves there. I, I, I didn't see, I didn't fully understand why he was, why the speaker was doing it. In hindsight, he was doing it to preempt this announcement of a compromise on border security. Uh, by the way, not to go into the full history here, but but right, Congress has been talking about uh, comprehensive immigration reform. This isn't really comprehensive, uh, but they've been talking about major legislation around immigration for two decades. So Murphy, Lankford, Cinema announced this deal. White House comes out within hours, endorses the deal. Republicans, almost without looking at the legislation, some of them start tanking this this bill that they asked for that the person they put in charge of negotiating on their behalf negotiated and and hasn't even been able to make the case for it uh, to to the point where over a 24-hour, 36-hour period, you had Senator Mitch McConnell backing away from the deal. 
you had senators who had initially expressed sort of positive words about it reversing course. And you had very openly senators uh, uh, were very openly saying, you know, the mood in the country isn't right. <laughs> uh, uh, you, you know, the, the, they weren't speaking to the substance of the bill. It was just sort of like atmospherics. Now, <laughs> now what I what I left out of my what I left out of the story is that the week, the days leading up to Speaker Johnson's announcement and to the announcement of this compromise, President Trump, former President Trump, had been making phone calls, and it had been uh, reported that President Trump did not want to see a border security bill move forward because of concerns politically that he had uh, that if Congress moved on a border security bill to address the crisis that he's been talking about since he announced his first campaign for presidents uh, to, to be president, if a bill was passed to address border security that had bipartisan support, uh, then it would it would help Biden politically and harm his ability to make the case that Biden doesn't care about the border and that we have an open border and all of this. We have a couple audio clips I want to play on this. The first, I want to play from uh, Senator James Lankford. His floor speech leading up to a vote around consideration of the border security compromise. Madam President, I'm going to vote yes to be able to move on to this bill. So we need a change in the law. I understand we have differences, but we've got to sit down together, figure out how we're going to solve problems, because the American people sent us here to do that. This is the pen that I was handed at that desk when I was sworn in to the United States Senate. And I signed a book that was at that desk with this pen because I was becoming a United States Senator because the people at home sent me here to get stuff done and to solve problems. There's no reason for me to have this pen if we're just going to do press conferences. I can do press conferences from anywhere, but we can only make law from this room. And to do that, you need one of these pens. There's a hundred of them in this room and 60 of us have to agree to solve a problem. And I'm determined to sit down with anyone who wants to solve the problem, regardless of what side of the aisle that they're on, to figure out how we solve these things. Because Americans are ticked off that this is not resolved. And they expect us to get things done. So why don't we do that? All right, I want to play one more clip from this same speech that Lankford, Lankford, uh, Lankford, some of them may have policy differences. Some of them have been very clear with me. They have political differences with the bill. They say it's the wrong time to solve the problem. 
or let the presidential election solve this problem. In fact, I had a popular commentator four weeks ago that I talked to that told me flat out before they knew any of the contents of the bill, any of the content, none, nothing was out at that point, that told me flat out, if you try to move a bill that solves the border crisis during this presidential year, I will do whatever I can to destroy you. Because I do not want you to solve this during the presidential election. By the way, they have been faithful to their promise and have done everything they can to destroy me in the past several weeks. So, Melissa, there, there you have it. If I were Senator Langford, I was just telling you this. This whole thing being asked to guide this this bill that includes border security or given this directive and then to suddenly have it all scuttled after doing a lot of weeks of work, this would be my villain origin story. It's... It's it's uh, stunning, uh, absolutely, absolutely stunning. Uh, Senator Mitt Romney, another Republican, has sort of spoken similarly about the the politics behind this. I I do want to just relay sort of what what the Republican narrative is, the Republican argument. You know, after, at this point, really after all this, um, you, you, have, you have some Republicans who are just saying that, that the, the bill isn't, isn't good enough. That by, that by, uh, by providing bipartisan support to a border security bill that doesn't have everything that they would like to have in it, or doesn't have enough of what they would like to have in it, uh, it uh, precludes the opportunity to, to to get all the things that they want. Sort of the issue will be cons- uh, considered settled. Okay. Uh, another another argument is that Republicans have re- reverted back to saying that. No new legislation is needed. The executive branch just has to enforce the law. And uh, this is why they're impeaching Secretary... Uh, this is why they tried to impeach Secretary Mayorkas. Uh, uh, and, and this is why President Biden shouldn't be elect, re-elected because he, he hasn't uh, enforced the law. Well, of course, like what runs counter to this argument is the fact that Virtually all of them were asking for new border security legislation. So, so three months ago, I mean, they, they appointed James Lankford to negotiate new legislation. I, I, I think that's pretty solid evidence that uh, you you thought at one point, uh, and not that long ago, that new legislation was necessary. Um, I think there's also this this idea that. Uh, you know that the 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 and this is related that just like the Trump administration had this under control, and so th- this is really ju- we just need to change who's in the White House. Again, the evidence is a bit 
mixed on on this. It's it's true that uh, crossings have gone up on average under the under the Biden administration. I think there's some evidence to suggest that that COVID and all the related like international politics dynamics around that affected. But but President Trump was declaring a crisis on the border. Uh, like during his own presidency, <laughs> and so, uh, and so, I'm not sure that passes muster, uh, passes muster either. But we we end up in this place where, after months of negotiation work, it doesn't look, to say the least, Melissa, like there is a path forward for uh, for border security, additional border security uh, uh, legislation. And also, of course, Ukraine and Israel aid is all tied up in this as well. And because of the uh, indecisiveness, and that puts it charitably, from Republicans uh, tying it to border security, then demanding that border security be left out and that aid be voted on separately, um, we're kind of in a, in a, like, before square one here. Now, to round out this conversation that we're having on this bill, we're going to hear uh, another audio clip at this time from U.S. Uh, Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut, the, the Democratic senator who was a part of this, uh, a part of these negotiations with Langford and with Cinema. This is unbelievable. Like I can't believe this is happening. We were all here. This wasn't a dream. This really happened. Republicans all stood up and said that they wanted a bipartisan bill to fix the border. The border is a priority. The border is a crisis. We delivered a bipartisan bill to fix the border with the Republican senator appointed by the Republican caucus to cut the deal. And within 24 hours before the ink was even dry, Republican senators decided they don't want a bipartisan bill to fix the border. So, so right, Melissa. In other interviews, Senator Murphy has said, you know, I was told uh, like people thought I was an idiot for spending my time in these negotiations. And by the way, Senator Murphy, uh, uh, I was supposed to meet with him twice during the course of these negotiations. Yeah. And he had to cancel both times because of how embroiled he was in these negotiations. Um, but that's that's kind of kind of an aside, except to say, like, he really was spending a lot of time on these negotiations. Um, he had been told, like, you're being naive here. Republicans are, are, are never going to uh, go for a bipartisan thing. But he spent hours and hours and hours of his own time and hours and hours and hours of his staff time in good faith negotiations with Senator James Lankford, who uh, Murphy has respect for, but you know they they didn't see eye to eye like like it was it was a negotiation, <laughs> um, 
And so he's talked pretty openly about like how this undercuts him, how this undercuts his ability to convince other Democrats that they ought to be negotiating in good faith with Republicans. So it's it's just like um, it's 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 just a pretty cynicism inducing scene that. You're ramping up fear about the crisis at the border, suggesting terrorists are just pouring over the border, suggesting that, you know, the the heart of the drug crisis, the fentanyl crisis is at the border. Uh, And then for political purposes, for an election that is eight, nine months away, for political purposes, you're not going to act on the thing that you've been scaring everybody about, that you've been saying is an is a existential crisis. It, it's, 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 a, it's cynicism inducing. And to do it all because President Trump made the phone calls. Uh, that it, it, So uh, really... Um, Really sad, sad uh, uh, series of, of developments on on the Hill regarding regarding uh, regarding these negotiations. Yeah, I uh, I wish I wish I knew what it would be like to to not be you and I to not be doing the jobs that we do, knowing what we know, paying attention like, yeah, to, yeah, the, yeah, sure, to sure, the, sure. the granular details. Right. I wish I knew like what, what this looks like. What to this someone looks like to someone sort of like who is. You hearing know, what they hear and reading what they happen to come across. Exactly, yeah. and uh, how is how this is how this whole situation is coming across? Because I haven't. I mean, our politics is always extremely messy. Um, there's a lot of reasons to be cynical about our politics, but for, just for procedurally to watch something in real time, right? Be so almost technocratically cynical is even, that is so well put Melissa is even more cynicism and cynicism inducing I to I it's one of those things where you feel like you've seen the bottom of the barrel but somehow you can you can dig all the way to the core of the earth <laughs> right well I mean because right because it was a stretch in the first place to connect border security to yeah. Ukraine Israel funding. Yes, like that, like especially that, because but you, it was like okay, the, you know, Republicans have the majority in the Senate. If they like if they want to do that, they have the prerogative. You know, Schumer appointed Murphy to negotiate in good faith. So, so, but from the, from the beginning, like this whole thing was kind of like okay, I'm not sure why we have to do these things together but there's a there's there's another like there's there are two parties in the country and one of them wants to do it and so like we could either not do nothing uh, not do anything or we could try and see if a compromise is possible and the thing is Melissa a compromise was possible like James Lankford is not some squish sort of it's not like they were negotiating with the most liberal again this is the person that the Republican caucus said this is our guy this is our guy mm-hmm. 
And they just threw him under the bus. Like I said, that would be my villain origin story, to be quite frank. Yeah, I... It's hard to wrap this one up in a bow and say, you know, everything's... I, on, on this show, we try not to, yeah. to be so cynical in our coverage of politics, but this is a particular one that we felt was... Yeah. It's just... Yes. You know, if you're looking to be cynical about our politics, this would be a pretty good place to we'll put start. put this one in the textbook. Yeah. Um, I do... Just one last thing before we move on, which is I do want to say both on immigration itself. Like, what we're not saying is Republicans are the first and only to ever have played politics with an issue before, including immigration. There are long-standing disputes that aren't quite as crass as this, but, like, for instance, in the Obama years, a lot of criticism that Barack Obama took up health care reform first mm-hmm. and not immigration mm-hmm. and that a good faith the argument w- was that a good faith effort on comprehensive immigration reform was never taken up by Obama even though it was promised uh, there have been a range of sort of like flashpoints in which there have been a, a range of sort of accusations that like uh, on immigration itself that both parties have played politics on this that mm-hmm. uh, that uh, uh, that Democrats have benefited politically from keeping this issue live at various points. I don't think that that's the case anymore, but the politics on immigration uh, hasn't always been like this. And then I'd say, Melissa, uh, on other issues, including some issues that aren't public yet, I don't feel that... At, I promise we will discuss this on the podcast when... It's appropriate and when it's it's public, but like I've been spending a lot of my time over the last couple of weeks helping some folks think through a, a policy matter where Democrats should be on board, but aren't for pretty plainly, explicitly political reasons. So what we're not saying in this segment is this is the first time anything like this has ever happened. What we are saying is that this is a pretty extraordinary... This, this was a months-long policy process in which the fate of Ukraine was was connected to the... As Senator Murphy said, the border is a priority. We need to get something done. And then negotiations are made to get something done. And then the tune changes. The, this, this has been... Uh, it's not the only instance of something like this to happen in its category, but among the category, this is a pretty pretty extraordinary uh, instance of playing politics with an issue that uh, doesn't seem to match with the kind of rhetoric you're going to be using in the presidential campaign about how uh, the crisis needs to be addressed and what you said you wanted and all, all that kind of thing. So... Let's let's we'll, wrap that up. We'll wrap that up, yeah. and we'll we'll take a little break, and then when we come back, we will discuss the the other news. The, the other news this week that was just that was just a bit wacky. All right, we'll be back after this quick break. This is where we are. You're listening to where we are. We're back from the break, and Melissa, let's talk about the news that came at the end of the week. Uh. 
politically charged news, sort of legally charged news, probably the least of it, though not irrelevant, is it did move the conversation off of a really bad start of the week for Republicans in Congress between this Senate debacle, Speaker Johnson lost two votes, including, uh, which rarely happens in the House, one of the sort of cardinal unspoken rules of running the House is that you don't bring uh, a vote to the floor if you don't know how it's going to go. And he did that twice in like 12 hours or four hours between the impeachment of Secretary um, uh, Mayorkas and then this this is uh, his attempt to get Israel funding through through the House. So that was the first uh, the first half of the week. Then we got to the special counsel. I think I referred to him as a special prosecutor, but special counsel. Yeah, special counsel, her. Appointed by uh, Merrick Garland, Robert Herr, mm-hmm. was tasked with investigating uh, President Biden's handling of classified documents. Um. Now, right. So this is uh, this is this is an investigation into a president. So it's 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 significant just for that reason. It's significant because there's this other uh, former president who's been investigated and uh, is in the legal process currently regarding his handling of uh, of of documents. Uh, and then, of course, we have a presidential election, which includes two candidates who have been investigated for their handling of, of documents. And we'll get into the, their distinct, distinctions between the two. But so that's sort of the that's sort of the setup here. This uh, the special counsel's report uh, was released at the end of the week, uh, I believe Thursday evening. Late in the day, yeah. Um, the you know the headline of the report, like literally the opening, the opening line of the report, uh, is we conclude that no criminal charges are warranted in this matter. We would re- we would reach the same conclusion even if Department of Justice policy did not foreclose criminal charges against a sitting president. Uh, And so that's, from the legal perspective, that's the headline. Uh, No charges will be brought against President Biden or anyone associated with them, as the special counsel goes into. Others were, like they looked into whether people around President Biden mishandled uh, uh, documents in a way that should be prosecuted. And and, but no charges are, are being brought related uh, to this case. Very few people are talking about that aspect of this Very report. Few. And the reason for that is that in the special counsel's consideration of uh, whether there's evidence that could justify charging uh, the, the uh, President Biden, uh, one of the considerations... And I'll just read directly from the executive summary of of the report. 
we have also considered that at trial, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to the jury, as he did during our interview of him, as a sympathetic, well-meaning, elderly man with a poor memory. Based on our direct interactions with and observations of him, he is someone for whom many jurors will want to identify reasonable doubt. It would be difficult to convince a jury that they should convict him, by then a former president well into his 80s, of a serious felony that requires a mental state of willfulness. Uh, the phrase, a sympathetic, well-meaning, elderly man with a poor memory uh, has been now published and spoken mm-hmm. countless times. Uh, it comes on the heels of uh, a couple of weeks in which President Biden has uh, seemingly misremembered uh, or 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 at least sort of misspoken about conversations he had with world leaders, uh, including saying that he had a conversation with uh, uh, Mitterrand of, of France, like, ye- like years after he died, uh, and uh, seemingly confusing uh, 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 Helmut Kohl, with uh with the current uh the current chancellor i i i think that was the 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 misstatement um and then and then this happens which right it comes from uh an official source an investigative source um and it has sort of it's taken over the last 48 72 hours of of discourse Melissa, I want to cover like a, a few things here. One, this is like undeniably bad for Biden politically. Uh, I'm not sure that this sort of flashpoint around his age wouldn't have come up without this, but this is certainly a pretty provocative intervention in the in the in the campaign uh his age was on voters mind before this but but this sort of very much brings it uh uh has brought it to the very fore of this this presidential campaign it it is it's a it's a profound political uh problem for the biden campaign uh, what I do want to say is for those who haven't read the report, um, th- there has been a lot of the mischaracterizations of the special counsel's report. We won't go into all of it now, but, but this idea that President Biden wasn't charged because his memory, because the special counsel determined his memory to be so poor is just categorically false uh, for one the invoca- the 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 mention of his memory uh, comes amidst a number of reasons why charges weren't 
uh, would not be brought. This is the last one. The special counsel also notes, like for starters, regarding what he said, the instance that could could make the best case for charging, which is which are these Afghanistan, these classified uh, notes and papers that President Biden had regarding uh, Afghanistan deliberations, by which the like just so folks have a context for what this is, like the primary document that's discussed uh, in this section is a memo Biden himself wrote to President Obama. Um, so, so like that's that's worthwhile. Uh, these relate largely to papers and documents that Biden himself created, not the not the creation. Uh, of, uh, you know, material and information collected uh, uh, elsewhere. Uh, like, uh, these are, uh, again, referring to the Afghanistan section, which the special counsel, again, said, like, if we were going to press charges, this is, is this, like, is the, the gives us the highest possibility of pressing charges. Uh, those are the kinds of documents we're talking about, like President Biden's own memos his own notes. Uh, special counsel also notes he he couldn't prove where the documents were. There's there's a suggestion that these papers could have been in Biden's Virginia home. He also says, and I quote, uh, another viable defense is that Mr. Biden might not have retained the classified Afghanistan documents in his Virginia home at all. They could have been stored by mistake and without his knowledge at his Delaware home since the time he was vice president, as were other classified documents recovered during our investigation. This would rebut charges that he willfully retained the documents in Virginia. Well, we could we could walk through sort of this report. Uh, I do think it's it's important. The. the the law here requires uh, the willful retainment of documents. And there's serious question the special counsel raises about whether there's evidence of willful retainment. The other piece of this, uh, or one of the other pieces, is uh, for presidents and vice presidents, uh, there is a robust historical precedent for presidents and vice presidents maintaining their papers, even including confidential top secret uh, information. The most infamous example of which would be Reagan. Uh, the Department of Justice issued, uh, specifically referred to these kinds of records as personal records of the president. And so there's, there's um, and so, so that's part of the special counsel's report. I think Biden, uh, 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 well, let me say one more thing, which is the special counsel helpfully gets into, he says, and I'll, I'll just read from the report here. With one exception, there is no record of the Department of Justice prosecuting a former president or a vice president for mishandling classified documents from his own administration. The exception is former President Trump. He goes on to explain, uh, he, he 
in the executive summary, he goes into this more uh, later in the report, but in the executive summary, uh, pretty briefly addresses why uh, the case involving President Trump, former President Trump, is, is categorically different from the case involving President Biden. Namely, uh, that President Trump, uh, after being given, and I'll read from the report here, after being given multiple chances to return classified documents and avoid prosecution, Mr. Trump allegedly did the opposite. According to the indictment, he not only refused to return the documents for many months, but he also obstructed justice by enlisting others to destroy evidence and then to lie about it. In contrast, Mr. Biden turned in classified documents to the National Archives and the Department of Justice consented to the search of multiple locations, including his homes, sat for a voluntary interview, and in other ways cooperated with the investigation. So the, the like legal headline here, which I just thought, Melissa, is interestingly supported by the what Democrats are taking as a political attack regarding comments about Biden's age. And interest, interestingly, I think this really needless comment about Biden's longtime view of himself as a man of history, I don't quite get how that was justified in a report of this, this nature. Interestingly, the, 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 it, it makes it really hard for Republicans to argue that the special counsel was somehow favorable towards Biden, you know, that, he, that, that Biden was left off the hook uh, in terms of the legal charges because it was a favorable special counsel. Well, no, it's, it's pretty clear that politically speaking, at least this, this uh, at least in the short term, this, this, uh, this report has not been favorable. And so the main ramifications that is in the news right now, since Biden won't be getting charged with anything, uh, is the impact of this 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 age debate, Melissa? What did you, what have you thought about the last forty eight hours, seventy two hours, the reports, um, the 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 legal finding, but then also the the political conversation that's uh, unfolded, particularly around around Biden's age. Well, with what the first sentence says, I I haven't. I honestly have given the the legality issue about five seconds of thought. It's the political side of things. You you saw me sending um, you basically screenshots of the various reactions that I was seeing on on Twitter, and the punditry class. Oh, I was just really upset throughout the last couple of days towards this particular story. I have felt that a lot of pundits have just committed a lot of malpractice around this particular issue. I mean, the almost like foaming at the mouth on just these particular sections on age and not even once talking about anything in context, what this was actually about. You, you, it was basically, it's like this special counsel understood that since 2020, uh, especially since uh, President Biden won the election, that this story about his age and being too old and being incompetent um, has been a drumbeat, a very, very steady drumbeat, and not just by Trump, by, but by a lot of different operatives. And so the special counsel knew that 
pretty much the response to seeing any kind of sentences that were written like this of calling him like an elderly man would be like Pavlov's dog. And that's what I felt like a lot of the pundits were sort of playing into. It was just like a Pavlov's dog response of, well, you know, we've kind of heard these stories and this chatter that, you know, he, he might not be competent enough and it, his age is going to be a real issue. But here, here, here's somebody who is interviewed and who has got some direct evidence for the things that we've been hearing for years now. Whereas like those things that they've been hearing for years now have also been a political strategy. And so I... I, I don't, I don't, so he, don't hear me out here. I don't, and we've had an episode on the age debate of, bo of both Trump and Biden since they're only four years apart. You and I have had an episode on, on age and what does age mean and what, what you and I think about, you know, all this talk, about, especially about Biden's age. So he, yes, President Biden is, is the oldest president that we've had. I so I it's not like it's not a concern for me but this report how it was written was written to be political obviously but then just for a lot of people who normally I follow and I like you know how even keeled and measured they usually are they tend to try to not th take things out of context I mean it was just hyperbole after hyperbole around oh this is just gonna tank everything imaginable and it was like wait and then i had to and i had to say wait hold up a second melissa stop go click on the link to go actually read at least the executive summary so i know where any of this is coming from what is actually being written around these sentences and these paragraphs here and i quickly realized you know what kind of report this was this was not just sort of a report on the legality of things that from a Trump appointed counsel, this was definitely something to get tongues wagging. Well, well, I just want to be clear. Trump did not appoint him as special counsel. No, I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. He he, uh, he was previously appointed by Trump, I think, as a U.S. attorney or something yes, like that. Yes, that is yeah, correct. Yeah. But Merrick Garland is the person who appointed yes, him yep. to be the special counsel for this specific who, who investigation. Is Biden's, who is the current U.S. attorney general. Yeah. Yes, that, that President Biden. A point. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, so right. So, so that has been, look, Democrats have a ton of trauma related to Jim Comey coming out during the 2016 election, speaking in a way that a lot of people feel irresponsibly influenced the election. And I think that very much informs some of the response here. I do think to, to, like, I think the evidence on the Democratic arguments, the, the argument that's being made by, by Democrats, uh, by, by a lot of Democrats, that this was a, a sort of political report, I think the evidence in favor of that is that he was, as you said, appointed by Trump. Um, uh, the... This is a guy who knows his way around. Robert Hur, the special counsel, is is someone who knows his way around D.C. Uh, knows we're ten months uh, less than away from a presidential election, and a phrase like a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory, like 
he knows his way around DC enough to know what a phrase like that is going to do, what it's going to mean politically, who's going to use it. That would be the argument. Uh, uh, that would be the argument in favor. And just to, just to add to that, right? And we'll we're, we're going to cl- play a clip from Vice President Harris that kind of speaks to this, and Biden himself, who notably we haven't said this yet, within hours of this report coming out, President. Biden held a press conference where he was very upset. Uh, I mean, he he acknowledged that no charges would be brought, but was very upset about uh, some aspects of this report, including, and I don't think we've said this yet, in, dis- in justifying his claim that Biden uh, has poor memory, uh, the special counsel refers to several instances during the course of his the voluntary interview the sitting president of the United States did with him within days after uh, the October 7th attacks on Israel. Uh, uh, the special counsel includes in the report that uh, Vice President Biden, according to, to him, forgot the year in which Bo, the vice president's son, died. Um, and uh, 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 expressed uncertainty about uh, when he was serving as vice president in relation to various questions he was being asked. Um, So that upset the vice president. Actually, while we've been recording this podcast, I received an email under First Lady Jill Biden's name specifically about this and how painful it was uh, to to have uh, Bo's death in the news like this and and the idea that the vice president didn't remember when his own son died. That that would be the Democrat. Like, he knew what he was doing. He knew what he was including. I will say, if this was a political hack job, it was a pretty surgical, surgical job. There are certainly things I've said, like, I, I I don't get in the opening pages of, of the executive summary, there's a reference to Biden thinking of himself as a man of history, as a, as a sort of historical figure, and, and that being why he kept records of his his uh, his positions on Afghanistan. I don't kind of I don't get why the self-image issue is to be made. I mean, he references that Biden wanted to run for president and ran for president in the 80s and then did again. I don't quite... I think it's enough justification for Biden to have kept... Not legal justification, but I don't think you need to know that much more about Biden uh, and why he would have uh, potentially kept the... Uh, it willfully kept the Afghanistan papers... Then he wanted a record of the memo he wrote to President Obama on a military decision he significantly disagreed with. Like, I don't think you need to go back to his childhood aspirations of being a politician. So, so if you, I, there's a case that can be made that this was a political uh, sort of, sort of uh, hatchet job. I, I will say I do tend to err on the side of like the law specifically refers to the willfulness of uh, 
like willfulness has to be a part of the of the chargeable crime. And to me, I think that that justifies an assessment of of the the the, the person's the person's memory. I, I like I do think it's a it's a rational thing to say. The whole report is about whether there's evidence that could justify uh, uh, charging someone. I do think it's it's a rational thing to consider the state of someone's memory if they're going to be charged with willfully doing something. I think I think that's like I think that's fair. The the the, the broader point I just want to make here is it really doesn't matter at this point whether it was politically motivated or not, it's, it's happened. I don't think that there's any question that the, like the special counsel, uh, I've, I've read various prosecutors saying that they wouldn't have included something like that in their report. But like, like this is out there and there's a presidential election uh, this year. Uh, the Biden campaign has to address concerns about his age. The special counsel did not invent these concerns. Uh, this provides an opportunity if the Biden campaign can meet the test, if President Biden can meet the test, to put these concerns to bed. The press conference was one example of his, uh, his trying to do that. Senator Mitt Romney said that he thought the president did a good job in the press conference. Uh, there was uh, an incident of uh, uh, near the end of the press conference, uh, President Biden uh, referred to Sisi of Egypt, but said that he was the president of Mexico, which of course provided more fodder. Mitt Romney, I think rightfully said, people, we do that all the time. Do you know how many world leaders, you know, like... Uh, uh, um, they're going to have and they're going to need other opportunities to convince the American public that he is fit to serve another term. And so whatever, if we if if through the Sunday shows, you know, this weekend, if we need to have a few more days of conversation about whether the special counsel should have, you know, used as many adjectives as he did, uh, uh, fine. Uh the Biden campaign has to figure out what they're gonna what they're gonna do here. Uh, like I, I think it's um, he's given like a, Biden is given like a quarter of the interviews that his predecessors that many of his predecessors have given. I, I think that it's it's very clear that it's become clear to me that he he, he has a press staff that will. I think overly protect him from from in in a way that undermines his authority from questions and so look the, the age was going to be at the center of this thing this gives you an opportunity to meet the bar to, to, and that's that's what they have to do otherwise this issue is behind them charges are not being brought there a special counsel appointed by Trump uh, uh, again sorry <laughs> a special okay. counsel uh who was previously appointed by Trump to an earlier position 
wrote in the executive summary of his report very clearly uh, about why he wasn't going to charge Biden, but why the charges against Trump were justified. Like that is the, that is the you know the idea that we're holding up this independent voice of authority as speaking independently into Biden's memory, the state of Biden's memory, but not holding up the fact that this 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 guy who President Trump selected for an earlier position is now saying. Uh, oh, the Biden case is totally different from this. I haven't seen that. President Trump over the last few days has been going on and on about how, well, if they're not going to charge Biden, how do they justify charging me? And it's like, read your own former appointee's report to see why they're charging you. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, Melissa, I think the report uh, uh, is good in the sense that it clears Biden of charges. I agree with others who have said, like, it, the, the, the report does have some questionable, does raise concerns about how Biden potentially stored, has used documents. Nothing that is, frankly, and I haven't read the full, the full report yet, nothing that raises, like, five alarm fires for me, for, or, or five alarm, uh, you know, uh, uh, huge alarm bells for me at this point. Um but the, the legal side is good, and the age thing is something that was always going to come. They got to deal with it. Yeah, agreed. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's why I call it Pavlov's dog. You plan it for years, and then when stuff like this comes up, it just comes home. See, to I roost. just don't think it's something you plant. He is a he's an eighty. I, you you know, like it would be one thing if it was. Uh, Forty-year-old uh, candidate who you said uh, he but has memory here, problems, my, and then this, and then something comes this out. This was my point he's, with our. He's, he's, he's eighty. It doesn't. This, it doesn't require. This was my uh, point, though. It doesn't require inception. To, uh, to, no, I to, I completely get that and agree with you, Michael. But this was my point during our age debate podcast, and that President Trump is only four years younger. Okay, but why but don't this these, isn't about President Trump? I know, but it is in some ways when it comes to this kind of the how p politically as a strategy how effective it has been that for four years you put out either very big whispers or little whispers on his competency when you don't do this when the same thing is not happening for trump and like his competency as somebody who's literally in his late 70s yeah i hear you there melissa and right that's i i think starts to get at something i'm sure we'll be talking about quite a bit over the next uh, over the coming months which uh, is pretty widespread dissatisfaction among voters, at least at this point, with the general election context uh, contest in general. Yeah. Um, what I will say is, what's clear to me after this is, regardless of whether it's fair, regardless of whether the special uh, counsel. Uh, uh, was as Vice President Harris uh, said that his report was gratuitous. Uh, maybe it was. Again, I, I, I was surprised by some aspects. It is the. There are no excuses when it comes to uh, a presidential election at this point. 
the Biden campaign knows that they have this challenge and they have to rise to meet it. I, I think they need to make the president more available to media, more available to voters, whether that's town halls, whether that's a series of extended interviews, uh, regardless of assessments of whether this is fair, fair or not, this is a challenge. And the Biden campaign is in for a real presidential campaign. And if they can't figure out how to neutralize concerns about Biden's age, um, they they may not be in office uh, past January of next year. I think that's right. So let's end it there for this week. It's been a lot. It's 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 been a week. It's been a week. We look forward to chatting with you next week about whatever is the latest in the news. Until then, this has been Where We Are. Bye. Picking your phone up Why?